All right, we're going to have uh, Jim coming up. He's from Cranberry, right? South Park, South Park. I don't know why I thought North End of Pittsburgh. Uh, when you told me very clearly the other day it was the South End of Pittsburgh. That's quite all right. I even asked you if that Elizabeth Bridge was open. And you oh, said yes, yes, you so, did. And I'm so thankful. But we're glad to have Jim with us. Uh, once a year we have the Gideons, and the, there's nothing more important than sharing God's Word Amen. with people. And it's printed form. That's just absolutely fantastic. So, Jim, thank you. Thank you, Pastor, for inviting okay. me. You know, I always get the distinct pleasure, uh, get the opportunity to speak in a lot of churches with the Gideons, and it's so wonderful to go in a church where there's more than 10 or 20 people in attendance. Um, there's so many churches out there today that are failing and failing miserably. People aren't going to church anymore. So how wonderful it is not only to come here and see all of you, particularly at 9.30 in the morning, but also people that worship and love the Lord. And uh, I've been in so many churches where people don't even bring their Bibles. I don't know how you can go to church without a Bible, and we shouldn't be relying on the pew Bible. It's great to have them there, but I've also been in churches where they don't even have pew Bibles anymore. Things have changed drastically. I'm a Gideon who's come full circle. I'm a Gideon who 50 years ago in June was encouraged by a friend of mine to go in the uh, tent in South Park, as we looked at many other things that day at, when they had the county fair back then. But he had been trying to lead me to the Lord for many months. And I was just graduated from high school in 69. And uh, he led me into the Gideon tent. And there behind the table was a Gideon. And on the table were many Bibles laid out. So I, I just started to peruse the Bibles and things not really knowing exactly why we were at that tent, because there was no barbecue, there was no anything there. So the gentleman behind the table, which I later learned was a Gideon, said to me, he said, I have a question for you. I said, go ahead. He said, have you ever accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I said, no. And my friend, who had been trying to lead me, the Lord was standing off to the left there. And the Gideon behind the table said to me, can I ask you why you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I said, quite frankly, nobody ever asked me. And I'm sure my friend was standing there like, what do you think I've been doing for eight months? But sometimes we need people to be very direct. And so he said to me, if I ask you, would you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I said, absolutely. So he took out one of the little Gideon Bibles on the table there, and he opened to the back the last two pages. And one of the things he did to me was tell me how much God loves me. He read me that whole page there, and then the page on, on the right, where if you would like to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, he walked me through that prayer. That was 50 years ago. And here I am today, a Gideon, 50 years later. And I've been in the Gideons probably for 12 years or more. But the one thing that's been a constant in all 50 years is that I've been a child of God. I'd like to say that I was always the best child of God, but I wasn't. 
I had great desires as a new Christian to want to devour the Bible. And I read it from cover to cover. And I attended church, and I went to all kinds of youth groups, Young Life for anybody who was old enough to remember that. Great organization at the time. I'm not too sure how they're faring today. But again, it was a time to spend time with other believers, other Christians, and also having graduated from high school, we continued those relationships for a period of time after getting out of high school. And I have to say, originally, my friend only got me to go to Young Life because that's where all the girls were. So I would say my motivation wasn't the best. But, you know, the Bible tells us that God has a plan for our life. In Jeremiah 29, 11, he says, I know the plans I have for you, for good and not for evil, plans to prosper you and give you a hope and a future. He says, then you'll come and pray to me and I'll be found by you. And you'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity from where I've banished you. As a Christian, I wanted to serve the Lord, and I thought the best way to serve the Lord was go into the ministry. So that was the direction I was headed. And I thought I was headed that way for a period of 20 years, but God never provided that opportunity. And then one day, God convicted me that where the ministry I want you to do is to be a chaplain in jail. I'm like, no, I don't think so. I want to... Go to a church where people look nice, people smell nice. It's not just one sex. There's both sitting together. Place that may have air conditioning and comfortable seats and things. Stand at a pulpit. But that wasn't God's plan for my life. And I went kicking and screaming down to the Allegheny County Jail. And I sat out in front, and right before I went in to see the head chaplain at that point, Protestant chaplain, his name was Uli Clem. He was from the Brethren Church. And uh, I said, Lord, I am willing to do this. This is not what I wanted. But do me a favor, Lord. Don't stick me with child molesters and people mentally ill, because I can't deal with those. I have seven children. Today I have eight grandchildren. Next month, nine So I went in there, and I met the chaplain, Pastor Uli Clem, and he said, a pod just opened up. It would be perfect for you. And I said, what is that pod? What's the makeup of it? He says, well, basically they're child molesters and they're mentally ill. And as I sat there thinking to myself, as he's telling me this, I said, God, don't you listen to anything I tell you? So God, again, knew what was best for Jim. And for the next year or so, I spent it on that pod with just child molesters and mentally ill people. And after a year of doing that or so, God directed me to another pod, which is maximum security men in protective custody. There's 90 of them, but some of them are so bad, they have to be segregated from the rest of them. They're child molesters, rapists, and murderers, and sometimes all three in one. That year I spent with the mentally ill people that were child molesters prepared me for the last 29 years that I've been doing this. 29 years as a chaplain down at the jail every Sunday. So 
It doesn't really correspond with the work I do as a financial advisor, but one of the things that's allowed me to do is every time I go to somebody and meet with them about their finances and, and they trust me with everything they're going to tell me, they'll ask me, you know, a little bit about myself. And I tell them, well, I'm probably the only financial advisor you'll ever have It's in jail every week. <laughs> if I'm not speaking in a church, that's exactly where I would be this morning, is down at the Allegheny County Jail. And it took about three years for God to show me his love for the inmates. I didn't go there with love for inmates. I went there out of obedience. See, in God's word, he tells us that he demands obedience more than sacrifice. To me, it was a sacrifice to go to jail. But the second thing was, it was more important for me to be obedient to God, whatever God's plan was for my life. The Gideons have a program at the Allegheny County Jail where any month with five Sundays, and it happens probably five times a year, we cover all 14 Protestant services there. And there's about 90 inmates on a pod, so you can multiply 14 times 90 and get a little idea of what the amount of people are. But I, as part of the duties that I have in our camp in South Park, I handle all of that. So in the month of December, the end of December, there'll be five Sundays, so I will schedule 30-some people to come down to the Allegheny County Jail who are already pre-approved to do ministry there. And uh, I consider it not only a, a privilege and an honor, but a very humbling thing that I get to do that. And I've done that for many, many, many years. Just part of the Gideon services. The Gideons are in the Bible business, as you, as you know. That's what we do is hand out Bibles. But unlike many of the great Bible programs that are out there and delivery systems, the Gideons are the only ones who hand out Bibles one by one. We hand them out face to face with just very few exceptions. The exceptions would be if you go in a hotel, and I don't know if you've been in a hotel lately, but look through the drawers. Not for bed bugs. Look through the drawers for a Bible. See if they're in there. If they're not in there, don't assume that they don't have them. Unfortunately, in many cases, they don't. But when you don't find one, go down to the desk and tell them, oh, I was looking through the drawers and I didn't see a Gideon Bible. Would you happen to have one? And wait and see what kind of reaction you get from the person at the desk. Sometimes it'll be, oh, no problem. We have more back here. We'll get you one. Sometimes it will be, well, we quit putting them in the uh, drawers. Don't stop there. Ask them why. Why did you do that? Well, because it makes some people uncomfortable. They don't believe what the Gideons believe and stuff. Well, God's not in the comfort business. I don't read anywhere in the scriptures where he tells you, I want to make you comfortable. You know, let them know. Write letters, do whatever. Let them know that you would appreciate having that Bible there. I take Bibles with me. If I don't see one in there, I put one in there. You know, I just want to make sure. But today we're, we're kind of in, in contention with other, if you want to call them religions. We find that the Marriott organization invites Gideons all over the world to put Bibles in them. Do you know who owns the Marriott? The Mormons. 
I still find that unbelievable. They want us to put our Bibles in there. And a lot of times right next to our Bible is the Book of Mormon. But one of the things we're finding today is not just God's holy word or the Book of Mormon. We're finding the Quran. And uh, some people, you know, have definite feelings about Muslim people. One thing that God taught me with the inmates after three, four years, it was just like where it talks about the oil that was poured on Aaron's head and it flowed down his hair to his beard. It was just like that one day when God anointed me with his love for the inmates. And it was just like it started at the top of my head and went down and I sat in my car blubbering like a little baby because of the love that I'd never experienced before that I was having for inmates. God said to me one time, how can you know God if you can't love like God? He taught me to love that day in a way I'd never experienced in my life. And not only did I find a love for the inmates, I read what it says in the Bible. The most quoted verse in the whole Bible is John 3.16. It's quoted in every language. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What's the first six words? For God so loved the world. Who's in the world? Christians, yes. Jewish people, yes. Muslim people, yes. Buddhists, yes. Homosexuals, liars, adulterers, thieves. God loves them all. And he loves them enough that he sent his one and only son, as you all know, to die for us. But his word is very clear that his desire is that all should be saved and come to know him. But implied in that statement, he knows that not all will. The great commission that we're supposed to go into all the world and preach the good news of the gospel to everyone. Not to select groups. I like to consider my home some kind of international community. A place of refuge, a place of comfort, but a place where God is. There isn't a day that goes by that there aren't 11 to 15 people in my house every day. Out of my seven children, not of one of them, are so young that they have to stay at home, but I still have three that live at home. And uh, my, my only agreement with them is, is you go to work, go to school, you bank your money, make plans for your life like that and serve the Lord. You can stay here as long as you want. I think they're taking me up on it because <laughs> they're, they're getting older. And the rest of the ones who come to our house, I think is because they don't have any refrigerators and they're always there at time to eat. Sometimes they, the friends and neighbors and stuff come to our house and they say, oh, Luke's not here or Eli's not here. That's okay, I needed something to eat. Well, they all know we don't wait on you. You know where the food is. You know where the plates are. Just eat and put your dishes back in the sink. But I thank God for that. You know, I thank God for our veterans, and I don't, I don't want to pass over that before saying that I learned great patriotism growing up. My dad was in the Air Force, 
He retired my senior year of high school. We moved from Washington State to Mount Lebanon where I got the opportunity to go through that Gideon tent. I grew up everybody telling me my dad was a hero. My dad in World War II was one of few people who was awarded the Medal of Honor, who survived the feat that he did. He was a recon pilot in World War II. It was January 11, 1945. He was 27 years old. At that time of the, the war, it was late in the war, morale was really bad in the Philippines, and about all they did was play poker, smoke cigars, drink some whiskey, and do their, their flight missions. So one day on the way back to the base, he and his wingmen, who had just been checked out the day before, both of them, in a P-51 Mustang, headed back to the base after they were filming the Japanese camps. My dad looks up, because they were flying low to the treetops, low to the canopy, and he sees a squadron of 12 Japanese fighters guarding one Betty Bomber. So at 27 years old, outnumbered 13 to 2, he radios to his wingmen, Let's attack them. His wingman goes, mm-mm, no way. 13 to 2, figure that out. Not good odds. We only flew this plane since yesterday. But my dad took the opportunity. Lipskin, his wingman, had no choice. But he followed him right into the battle. My dad ended up shooting down six of the fighters and one Betty bomber. Lipskin got three, and my dad chased the remaining three in the clouds. Well, the interesting thing with the P-51 was it had cameras on the guns, so every time he pulled the trigger, it recorded it. If you're familiar with the Medal of Honor, it is an award that's the highest military award in the world. It is a presidential award, and times can take years to decades. There are some people just having been awarded the Medal of Honor since World War II or Vietnam. Well, this was all on record, on film. My dad probably holds the record for the, the shortest term from the time they reviewed what he did to awarding him the Medal of Honor. It happened on January 11th, 1945. He was awarded the Medal of Honor on April 7th, 1945, less than 90 days. Because there was no dispute. But as much of a hero as my dad was, I never knew him to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I grew up going to the White House. I grew up with meeting every president from Eisenhower on. And everybody would tell me about my dad. You can look at any books. You can even look online on YouTube and see the whole ceremony from 1945. He passed away in 1990. But I never knew whether my dad had a relationship to Jesus Christ. And that's the one thing I swore to my children. You, if I don't come home today, you will always know where I am. I'll be with the Lord. You know, what assurance that is to give your children, to give that to your grandchildren or your spouse. I've had an inmate say to me, I'm going to kill you. And I looked at him and said, so what? And they looked back to me and said, what do you mean, so what? I said, so what if you kill me? He says, do you know that I've killed other people? I can't get any more life than life. So if I kill you, nothing happens really to me. 
But he says, you're dead. I said, my body's dead. But you're going to put me right where I want to be, in the arms of Jesus. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'm working my way there. I'm trying to get there. All you're going to do is help me. He looks at me and says, man, you're not worth it. And he turned around and walked away. I get asked all the time, aren't you ever afraid to be with those kind of people in jail, the pit of the earth? No. No. Why? Because I know I'm exactly where God wants me to be at that moment. And I tell inmates all the time, if you are where God wants you to be, you're in the right place. Inmates want to be in another place. I have people come up and, and ask me all the time, would you pray for me? I'm going to court tomorrow. Okay, I'll pray with you, but let me ask you a question. Are you willing to accept whatever happens tomorrow is God's plan for your life? That's a very hard question to ask them because the answer is even more difficult for them if they don't have a faith and belief in Jesus Christ. Because all they're asking is, I want you to pray that God will free me. Oh, I can give you the truth that will set you free. The Bible says the truth will set us free. But what if God wants you to be in jail? What if God wants you to spend the rest of your life in jail? Are you willing to serve God in that place if that's where he wants you to be? There's consequences in this world. But your circumstances and actions and choices will dictate where you spend eternity. And sometimes that's a hard decision. I always find it amazing that Muslims, before they're going to court, will always ask me to pray. I guess they want to cover all bases whether it's with Allah or whether it's God, whatever, you know, we'll, we'll make sure it works tomorrow. But God's allowed me to love lots of people. For a period of four years, you know how some people bring cats and dogs home? I bring people home. I don't tell my wife anymore. I just show up with them. What's she going to say? They're right there. But she is very gracious. But for a period of four years, I got to interact just very briefly with a cashier, Giant Eagle. And I could tell she was foreign. She would never speak. And I like to try to engage people in conversation, kind of work the Lord in there somehow. And, but nothing with her. Three Thanksgivings ago, and we're coming up on it this month, I went to Giant Eagle. My wife said, we got 30 people coming. We need some more stuff for tomorrow. So I went there. And lo and behold, this cashier who worked part-time, there she was standing, as was everybody else. And I went up into her lane. I thought, eh, let's just see if I can interact with her again. And at that moment, I stood in her line. The Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, you need to invite her and her family to your house tomorrow for Thanksgiving. And it was so strong. The presence of the Lord was so strong. But I knew I had to do it right. I didn't want... To do it wrong. I didn't want to ask her and have some 30-something-year-old female look at some 67-year-old man and go, Ugh. So I knew I had to do it right. So when I got up there, I said, oh, are you prepared for Thanksgiving? She goes, oh, we may get turkey or something. I said to myself, oh, you're not ready. I said, oh, okay. So I paid and, and left. And the Holy Spirit, again, was just so much on me. And I hurried up home, and I couldn't find my wife, so I called her on her cell phone. I said, where are you? She goes, I'm on my way home. Why? So we got to go back to Giant Eagle. She goes, 
did you forget something? I said, sort of. I'll explain it to you when you get here. So while she's coming back to the house, I'm on the computer typing out her name, address, phone number, and the time of dinner tomorrow, 1 o'clock. So at that moment, my wife got there, and she goes, what's going on? I said, we got to go back to Giant Eagle. She goes, for what? I said, remember that lady I've been telling you about for over four years? She goes, yeah. I said, God has laid it on me. i got to invite her and her family. we got to go do this, but i got to do it right. I can't be the one just by myself. you got to come with me. The whole way there, my wife says, what if she's not there? She's only part-time. It is the day before Thanksgiving. And what if the lines are so packed you can't get in her line? I said, that's all God's problem. This is his idea, not mine. So we get there, and every line is packed. There's one lady paying her groceries in her line. That's it. I look at my wife like, see? (laughs) So we move up the line. And the woman behind the stand, the cashier, says, something wrong? I go, oh, no, nothing is wrong. My wife Tammy and I would like to invite you and your family for Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Would you come? Now, anticipating, I've got to talk to my husband. Thank you, but I don't really know you. She says, yes. I said, great. Here's our name, address, and phone number. You just made my Thanksgiving. 1 o'clock tomorrow, if you have any problem, call me. The number's on there. We'll make sure you get to our house. We're really looking forward to it. And we headed out around the side of the cashier stand there. And as we're walking out, I looked at my wife and said, told you. So when we got home, we prepared for the next day. Not any discussion on that. But about 20 minutes to one, I said to a lot of our family and kids and neighbors and stuff, I said, hey, there's going to be another family coming here for Christmas or for Thanksgiving. And they said, you mean that woman from Giant Eagle? I said, how do you know about that? And they said, you've been talking about her for four years. I said, well, yeah. Well, how many's coming? Don't know. What are their names? Have no clue. But I said, they should be here. 20 minutes to one, my wife goes, they're here. I shot down the steps, greeted them coming up the steps, and it was the woman first. And I said, I am so thankful that you guys came. You've made our Thanksgiving. And I said, but I apologize. I don't even know your name. She says, my name is Rasha. This is my daughter Miriam and my daughter Misk and my husband Muhammad. And I extended my hand to him. And I said, I am so thankful that you guys came. You've made our Thanksgiving. And he's standing there. And he says, no, you made our Thanksgiving. He said, "Uh, why, why? Why do you invite people you don't know for Thanksgiving? I said, it's a God thing. I'll tell you about it later. And he says, I want you to know we've been in this country for 10 years. We are Muslim. I said, figured that. And uh, I have a big American flag hanging right there. He said, when he pulled up and saw that, he goes, "Uh, I don't know if this is a good idea. Because for 10 years, people have been telling him that they hate Muslims. He said, we've made no friends, have no family here. We were thinking this is the worst decision we've ever made in our life. And I said, I'm going to tell you something. There's over 25 people on the other side of that door. If you walk through that door, you'll have 25 new friends. So they came in, and I introduced them all, and then I apologized to them and said, 
you know, we are Christians, and I say a prayer, ask for God's blessing, and I prayed for them in Jesus' name. And they sat there, and while we were sitting there having the meal, he looks at me and he said, you said this is a God thing. I said, yeah. And I said to him, as I mentioned, we're Christians. I try to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. For four years, God's been telling me to ask your wife and family to come to our house. And I felt yesterday the Spirit urging me greater than anything I'd ever experienced, and I just had to. And he says, that is absolutely amazing. I said, I know, it's incredible, isn't it? He goes, no, what you don't understand. Had you not asked her yesterday, you would have never, ever seen her again because that was the last day she worked. So had I not been obedient to the Lord right at that moment, I would have never had that chance again to invite them. You know, the people came for Thanksgiving and a month later came for Christmas and then came for New Year's and then a couple months later came for Easter. Muslims. He's a Sunni and she's a Shiite. I don't understand that one either because those two factions don't get along. I know God has a plan for his li- their lives, and it's just a matter of him working it out. And what we try to demonstrate to them and others is the love of God. They will come to know Jesus Christ. I am confident. I am confident of that. But we spend too much time in our lives finding reasons not to love other people. Well, those guys in jail deserve to be in jail because they're the scum of the earth. What makes their sin worse than your sin? To God, sin is sin. He does point out specific sins in the Bible. But anytime we don't do what God wants us to do, we're in disobedience, we're sinning. There are consequences here on earth. And the decisions we make today or the decisions we make on this earth dictate where we're going to spend all eternity. We have an enemy out there who's doing a phenomenal job. Absolutely phenomenal. His objective, seek, kill, and destroy, the Bible tells us, and he's doing a great job at it. I think sometimes Satan sits back and is just laughing that all the people out there are doing my work for me. I don't even need you know, my, de- my demons and stuff to do it, the angels that were cast out of heaven, because I got you people doing it. We need to make a decision, as it says in Joshua 24, 15, that we serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we choose to serve the Lord. And God wants us to be obedient to him throughout the day just not on weekends. The Bible says that we need to meditate on his word day and night. We have to hide his word in our heart so that we don't sin against him. The Gideons know that very well. That's why we give out Bibles. It is the bread of life. It is his word. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. But we can't do that without your help. We can't do that without your prayers, number one, and your money, number two. We have requests all over, the war, or all over the world for Bibles, but we can't fulfill those orders because we don't have the money to pay to publish them. And we get probably the cheapest publications out there, like a dollar and a half for these small little Bibles or $5 for the big ones. 
But your efforts, your money, your prayers are what determines how many people get the word of God. And, uh, you know, we try to put our money where our mouth is. We try just not to talk the talk. We walk the walk. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. Are there things we could approve in the Gideons? Absolutely. But a couple years ago in June, we delivered our two billionth Bible. Two billion. Not one million. Not two million. Two billion. Took us 13 years to do the second billion. Took us 73 for the first. That's why I'm a Gideon. I want to hand out the word of God. So I thank you for your time. As I told your pastor, if you'd like me to stay for six hours, I will. There's a lot of stuff in here I could tell you. But you know, God wants you to read that for yourself. He calls it the bread of life. We don't live on memories of food. Anybody in here live off of a memory of food? No. We eat daily. God just wants us to eat daily from his table. God bless you and thanks for the morning. Thank you. Incredible. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that encouraging? Well, we're going to take up an offering. Uh, for it's our yearly offering for the Gideons in a formal way. And uh, we have the cards out there. We use them and uh, other things that we do. But this is our formal way of expressing our thanks to the Lord and in, in sharing in the work of the Gideon. So ushers, will you come as we do that at this point? Together. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, all of us have come today with needs in our hearts, concerns that we have, physical needs, spiritual needs, financial needs, relationship issues, challenges on the job. These are always in our mind. And we come to you because we know that you're a prayer-hearing God who loves us and wants us to, wants to hear our prayers. And so, Lord, as we share all of these prayer concerns with you, we share this prayer concern that your word will be able to reach the hearts of people around the world in every nation and every continent as we faithfully dispense it to those who need it. Lord, we pray knowing that your promise is that your word will not return void but will accomplish exactly what you want it to accomplish in Jesus' name. Bless the Gideons, bless Jim and all that you have led him to do and help us to be faithful to you here in this community as well as what we do worldwide. Lord, we thank you in your most precious and holy name. Amen.